Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, <clears throat> and welcome to us the Ask a Budget Show, episode one forty. I hope you're all doing very well. And before we begin, let me wish you all a very happy Diwali. As we know, Diwali is tomorrow, and I suspect that some of you must have celebrated Diwali a little early after watching the cricket match today, <laughs> right? So yeah, so I wish you all a very happy Diwali. And uh, I too watched the cricket match today for a change. Uh, these days, I don't watch cricket, but today I thought, let me watch it. and it was uh, certainly well worth the time so um, let's see who all is there with us i can see harry potter arsh the dragon emperor vivan shivansh shashwat amritansu joseph stalin abhishek challenge accepted r242 nilesh softwares gorov piyush rishav shetkari nivesh mayank pranay सागर देवांशु राज कलश गुप्ता वरिंदर दीपेश स्वप्ना समर्थ प्रियांशी मजर नील साकेत अभिनव टक्स शार्क्स आर्यन शुभम द ऑक्स बॉस आशीष भूमि श्रवणी व्लादिमीर आदित्यनाथ वैभव मिश्रा अभिषेक सरकार श्रीराम एंजेविल अप्रति अप्रतिहत सिंह आकाश निकुंज अल्फा देवेंद्र दिवाइन आकाश प्रसाद स्वर सौंदर्य पंकज द गाय शुभम अनाहिता शंभवी प्रेरणा सुभी कास्ता पुनित आर टी के आशीष तृप्ति जिग चाइड ऑफ इंडिया निखिल देव क्राई बेबी चैलेंज एक्सेप्टेड एंड लॉट्स ऑफ द पीपल गुड इवनिंग गुड डे टू ऑल ऑफ यू थैंक यू फॉर बींग ऑन द शो विथ अस ऑल टू राइट सो लेट्स टेक अ फ्यू क्वेश्चन सो yesterday i did the uh, i i kind of rebooted the indian interest podcast and i spoke about a variety of geopolitical issues that are of importance right i spoke about that so some of those topics may be repeated today because lots of people have asked again lots of questions about similar questions uh, about the same topics so some of the questions will be kind of repeated but yeah i am always happy to ask you uh, to answer your questions even if they are repeated because many of these things are very important and things are changing uh, geopolitically very rapidly right events are are going at a very rapid pace so we will discuss various issues today including geopolitics including history etc so let's take what is question number 1 where is question number 1 okay yes yes this is by chiching and rajat do share your trips when you come live again and how much anti india activity did you witness in lac would like would love to know your experience there so yes as you all know i was uh, not, i did not do any live streams last week because i was traveling uh, usually i am on doing some podcast or doing some collaboration somewhere but this time i was uh, traveling on my own so um a few months ago if you recall i did this i had this conversation with dr edward luthwak uh, who is one of the world's foremost geo strategists right and the conversation was mainly centered around china and the threat that it represents to india and what it means to the rest of the world right so we were discussing mainly china and national security from india's perspective in that podcast and in during that conversation he asked me whether i had been to arunachal pradesh and i said i have not been there and then he went on to describe the geography and the terrain of arunachal pradesh and, and the difficulties for the indian armed forces to reach the border areas and those things and i was thinking to myself wow this guy is not even indian but he knows my territory's border regions better than me so then i thought that i should actually myself go and uh, you know visit some of the border areas and and do some fact finding of my own and familiarize myself with the border conditions of our nation 
so that's what i did the the past week i spent a week or so in northern india mainly in the ladakh union territory right and uh, yeah so it was a very interesting experience uh, i did visit the loc between india and the temporary nation state of pakistan temporarily yeah i did also want to go to the lac with in between india and tibet where which is currently temporarily occupied by china uh, because of weather etc i was not able to actually make it to the lac but i was uh, in in the region right so um one of the things the first thing i had in mind you know was that i will not take any photographs of any military installations india has a lot of military presence obviously naturally in this region and i was very conscious i made a very conscious decision that i will not take any pictures or any film any video and whatever of any military activity uh, not activity but mi- military installations or or outposts or, or whatever it is you know in the region and i did not do that i did take photographs i mean thousands of photographs of of, of the terrain of the of the region and all that and some of those photographs did actually accidentally capture some military activity not in the military outposts but on the roads and i will not release those pictures anytime soon maybe not for the next 2 3 years for sure uh, but my experience was very interesting so, so let me share some pictures you know because a picture tells you a thousand words a picture is equivalent to a thousand words so uh, as you can see this is in ladakh and it's already snowing there winter seems to have come rather early so that's me and that's the the snowy region in the background right very snowy there and as you can see it's a very beautiful landscape i would uh, would like uh, it would be great if people would visit it more you know instead of uh, going abroad indians want to go abroad and see mountains and snow and things like that while well, we have incredible natural beauty within india itself so it would be great if indians would visit our own regions instead of going abroad and contribute to the local economy so this is just one one example right it's incredible natural beauty uh, siachen is very close by so you can see Uh, this is not exactly a military installation but it's just uh, uh, some kind of memorial right so it's about uh, the siachen warriors siachen is very close by f- f- to this to the, to the place where you which you see in the picture here and uh, this is very close to the lfc where where the enemy can actually observe you the pakistanis which who temporarily occupy some places or some some territory nearby so this uh, is a photograph you must have seen already in the thumbnail and this is me striking a very silly pose and behind me you can actually see pakistan occupied kashmir it is actually pakistan occupied gilgit baltistan behind me right and this is uh, the village of thang which is considered which is called the last border village of india and uh, <clears throat> this is yeah from a different angle all of uh, what you see in the background the mountains the valley etc the, the the pass between two mountain ranges all that that is all temporarily pakistan occupied gilgit baltistan that's what it is right and uh, the mountain peaks behind me in this picture are currently occupied temporarily by by pakistan so the mountain peaks behind me are pok pojk or pakistan occupied gilgit baltistan so i was over there and they actually have bunkers and and um, and uh, encampments up there in those mountain tops they are watching us but we they are not visible from from here and i also I like I said I took thousands of pictures and some uh, later when I checked the pictures I found certain things which are rather hard to explain for example this for example that right some very strange pictures that I can't quite ex- uh, which are a little hard to explain this is the Pangong Tso region there's a beautiful lake over there called the Pangong Lake Pangong Tso so this picture was taken in that region and it is slightly 
yeah as you can see so uh yeah so that was the experience i did not witness any anti india activity as such apart from the fact that the pakistanis occupy certain territories in that region west of where i was that obviously is anti india activity that is a temporary phase of our history in a, in a decade or so it will no longer be the case and uh, the indian flag will be visible everywhere so that is in brief about my trip uh, that fact finding trip that i did to the uh, northern border regions of uh, india uh, i did not take much video because when you are doing filming you don't really experience the place right i wanted to actually experience the place and understand what the terrain is like and what the border regions are like if you want to do a, a vlog for instance you need a crew with you it's very hard to do a vlog yourself and then experience the place and understand the place so i did not take any film very little video i just took lots of photographs as you and some of them i showed you and that was the experience i could not make my way all the way to rajangla for instance which is uh, along the lse close to the lse between india and tibet uh, currently uh, temporarily chinese occupied tibet in the future i would like to do that in the future i would also like to uh, go and visit arunachal and other places as well so yeah this was a uh, a brief interlude for me a small fact finding trip for me and it was very interesting incredible natural beauty i mean you should all go and experience it yourself incredible natural beauty and i actually went there it it not the not a good time to go there from from a weather perspective because i went there in autumn right in the in the second and third week of october when winter is almost there it's extremely cold in the city of leh it's already in the night time in 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 early morning it's the temperature goes down to minus 2 or minus 3 or minus 4 perhaps and in if you go further north the temperature goes down to minus 7 already maybe maybe close to minus 10 now right so uh it's not a good time for tourists to go there the altitude is incredibly high the city of leh which is which is in the in the valley region in in ladakh is at an altitude of 3.5000 kilometers uh, meters above sea level that's almost 13000 or so feet above sea level which is incredibly high it's very hard to breathe there for a person who lives at sea level typically right so the the altitude is very high the oxygen levels are low a low it takes time to acclimatize over there and if you go further uh, you know if you if you go to higher altitudes like in the pangong region it gets even harder and in the temperature it gets even colder so it's not for everybody typically you would want to go there in april may june july maybe around august i went in autumn almost winter so it was but i enjoy the cold and i was told to use sunscreen yeah because the the sunlight there is very direct is very harsh but i thought like sunscreen is it's a cosmetic i don't need that and as a result i've got this badly sunburned and windburned face as you can see <laughs> these patches of dark yeah i i kind of get sunburned very easily that's what i've discovered but anyway so that's the kind of uh, experience that i had that's the trip that i did to understand the border regions first hand what the climate what the terrain is like what the geography is like what challenges our great armed forces and our our brave soldiers face there all that i got a very good understanding of that first hand understanding and i would like to repeat that in other parts of uh, the border regions of india as well in the future so that's the kind of experience that i had um, and maybe in the future i may even do a vlog if i can i would need to hire a uh, you know so a crew for that i i will do that in the future right now let's go on to the other questions okay this is by birkaran singh neel badori and avinash 
what about you <laughs> what about us national security policy saying india is their major strategic partner neil says did this video come up after us declared its national security policy stating india as an ally i think not and avinash says then what about mentioning india's name so many times in the recently released national security policy calling india an ally and so on and so forth even though we only call america a partner is it a, just a bluff or a tactic or a signal for change so i i have said various things about the us uh, from india's perspective and lots of people are now saying that i was completely wrong because the americans have called india an ally in their national security policy document and i, I discussed this yesterday as well but let's discuss it all over again because i'm sure many people may not have seen what i said yesterday or heard listen to what i said yesterday so the americans did uh, release their national security policy document and in that document they have they have mentioned india as a, as a major defense partner and and uh, and an, as 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 an ally right now understand this all warfare all di- all diplomacy all geopolitics all geostrategy is based on deception it's based on not lo- letting your enemies and your partners and your allies know what you're up to and what your long term plans and objectives and strategies and tactics are you should never lo- let anyone else know what you're thinking and what you're planning so if a nation like the us releases an official national security policy or document you cannot take it seriously it is only for public consumption it's for fooling people who are very gullible like like the, the like many of the comments that one sees right and i i'm sure lots of other uh, so called <laughs> uh geopolitics observers and commentators must have uh, been very enthused about the fact that america has called india an ally and mentioned india seven or eight times in the document i i see first of all and please understand i don't watch any other geopolitics videos i don't follow such channels and such uh, writers and all that so i have no idea who said what but i get the feeling i get the sense that many of the other geopolitical uh, experts seem to be very happy about this so i am not happy about this i am not it doesn't excite me at all because any document that is released in public is only for public consumption it does not reflect what that nation actually seeks and intends to do it's all about deception so if they have mentioned india seven eight times or whatever why are you all getting so happy about it if they have called india an ally so what it's words if you, i mean have i have you not listened to me enough how many times have i said this over and over again words don't matter only actions matter and yet you all get happy about this oh my goodness utsav ki taiyari karo india india is now uh, the americans have called us an ally they mentioned us seven or eight times in the document great success nacho i mean what is this what is this why why are people so happy about this look at the actions the americans are doing they have brought pakistan out of the fatf gray list so now any nation can invest in pakistan without worrying about uh, any sanctions from the us from from a terrorism perspective right so pakistan has now been given a clean chit the americans are giving pakistan a half billion dollar upgrade to their f16 fighter jet fleet these are actions not words the american vassal states like south korea and japan are now investing big time in pakistan these are actions not words words don't matter there are so many other things the american ambassador there is no american ambassador in india right but there is an american ambassador in 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 pakistan who recently visited the illegally and temporarily occupied uh, part of kashmir which is which is temporarily occupied by, by pakistan and they called it he or she whoever it is called it ajk whatever the hell that means right instead of pojk right 
so they are all they, they are supporting pakistan in all these matters these are actions when a diplomat issues a statement on twitter and and uses a certain term that's an action it's not a, it's not words words anymore it's a, it's it's a signal of support so when you see all these things when you see the actions they are all anti india when they are aiding and 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 uh, arming pakistan that's an anti india action that's a hostile act against india these wonderful words don't matter but indians are so emotional and so gullible yeah that yeah they said this so now everything is fine how silly can people can can, can people be have you learned nothing from me i just don't get it i just don't get it why people are so so gullible in india so that's what i have to say the say about this i i can see lots of people these are just three of the comments i'm i'm not saying they're all like all harsh or whatever but i have uh, i'm just i've seen lots of comments in the you you know abhijit you are all wrong see what the americans have said now see what they've stated they've called india a major defense partner and and a strategic ally and they've mentioned india seven or eight times in the national security policy so yeah abhijit you are wrong and americans actually are pro india how silly how gullible is that i just don't understand how people can be so silly anyhow that's where we are i think it's going to be a long time before we indians grow up so please please grow up grow up at least those of you who are who are watching yeah all right next samarth and rajat samarth say, <laughs> rajat says with the resignation of liz truss would rishi sunak be able to take england out of its misery or will we witness another sri lanka for the uk and samarth says will another clown boris johnson come back as the new pm now that liz truss has resigned so my my question first of all is why do we think that rishi, rishi sunak is a person who's capable of taking in england out, out of its misery why what do we know about uh, rishi sunak he's an indian origin guy he's a, and people are so so happy about that my god rishi sunak has a second chance now he may become the pm who cares who is he he's another nobody i had said a few weeks ago that liz truss is a nobody and she will achieve nothing and people were really angry about that i saw lots of very um angry comments saying that abhijit who the hell do you think you are who you are, who who are you who are you to say that liz truss will do nothing and who whatever well i have turned out to be absolutely correct my my words have been, have I mean, you know she's already gone one of the shortest serving prime ministers of all time in the uk if not the shortest serving prime minister she's a nobody similarly in my opinion rishi sunak is going to achieve nothing if even if he does become the pm of the uk of england and we don't even know if he will be able to do that so even if he does become the pm of the uk it will not make any difference to us or to the uk the uk is the new japan apart from shinzo abe you had a long procession of nobodies who became pm of japan for a certain period of time they achieved nothing and they disappeared and nobody remembers them the only person who mattered was shinzo abe and we know what happened to him he was one guy who actually mattered he was one guy one japanese leader who was actually a genuine friend of india and i always say that there are no friends in geopolitics but but uh, shinzo abe was a genuine friend of india and we know what happened to him so now the, the same thing has happened to the uk if you look at the the record the tra- the record of the past few years the past let's say couple of decades of the pms of uk they are all nobodies you had gordon brown you had theresa may you had boris johnson you had a few other people who i don't recall and latest the latest person was liz truss they came and went they come and go and nothing ever happens the uk is see really what's really happening is that the uk is now being administered from from washington 
the uk is a vassal state it's a colony it's an outpost of the us it doesn't matter who's the pm of the uk that person has no power whatsoever no whatsoever and no decision making ability whatsoever if some people are going to be upset about that well cope because that is the truth and I, and mark my words whoever is the next pm of the uk is going to be another nobody and that person is going to achieve once again nothing of any significance so whether it's rishi sunak whether whether it's boris johnson whether it is what's her name swilla whatever the hell she is these people are nobodies they have no leadership ability whatsoever their only ambition is to put pm on their cv take boris johnson for instance his in, his entire ambition was to become pm a genuine leader has bigger ambitions a genuine leader wants to take the country forward and becoming pm is a step in that direction it is not the end goal the end goal is to take the nation forward and make the nation greater and to do that they have to become pm that's why they want to become the pm not to you know to to gain the glory and the prestige that comes with the pm position but to use the pm position as a means of taking the nation forward and serving the nation that's what real leadership is like these people like boris johnson etc and, and whoever else the swilla or, or liz truss they only want to become pm because it it adds a feather to their cap and it looks great on anyone's cv these people are nobodies there is no leadership quality or ability there right they only seek to serve the real master the real master sits the real masters sit in washington in the pentagon that's all it is so it doesn't matter who becomes the pm it doesn't matter at all nothing's going to change i don't see the uk becoming another sri lanka right the, um, the uk the, the uk is still very valuable it's still very useful to, to the us why would they ruin it they will ensure that there is no genuine leader who can emerge that's what the americans will ensure that no genuine leader can ensure can emerge in the uk who would actually care for the national interest of the uk and its people today the uk's foreign policy is an extension of the american foreign policy everything the uk does serves the united states it is made to look like there is democracy and blah 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 but it all seeks to serve the long term strategic interests and the national interest and the you know monetary and financial interests of the us that's all it is the uk is nothing but a colony a vassal state at best so they will not turn it into another sri lanka they will not ruin it they will use it as long as they can and as long as it's useful and it's still quite useful so that's what's going to happen but whoever becomes pm next is going to be an insignificant person whether it is rishi i don't know why indians are so happy about rishi sunak who cares who is he he's not serving the he's not serving india in any way whatsoever even if he does become the pm he's going to have no actual power so these people are insignificant we should stop wasting our time over these people froster says i think the new britain pm will be an indian because americans will try try to give india more reasons to be on the side of the west without giving us any real benefits this person froster is intelligent he or she gets it yeah he i mean the americans know very well that indians are extremely emotional indians like prestige indians like status as even if the status comes at the at the expense of india's national interest it doesn't matter indians don't even understand what is the meaning of the national interest yeah so they may give, yeah this is a very interesting thought that froster has put forth that maybe the americans will make uh, maybe rishi sunak or maybe what's her name swela 
the next pm of the uk so it will it will so then there will be a lot of uh, pressure from the indian voting population for the indian government to become more pro west because see now we've got a indian origin uk pm but we will uh, india will gain no real benefits from it everyone knows that i mean not everyone knows that but you should know that that it doesn't benefit india in any way whatsoever whoever is the pm of the uk think about it there are so many indian origin ceos in the west whether it's google whether it's uh, what's it called facebook or there are dozens of companies right big corporations the fortune 500 corp- corporations lots of these ceos are indians what in what way does it benefit india in no way whatsoever and yet indians dance and, and rejoice whenever one of these people ascends to the top post these people merely serve an unseen unknown and larger master so that's how it is that's how the real world works and this is what none of your geopolitical experts will tell you but that's what it is so i'm glad that Fo- froster has learned something at least from watching me and i'm i'm really glad to see that so yeah maybe 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 froster is right maybe the americans will will install an indian origin uk pm yeah to make uh, the gullible indian population populace rejoice and dance and then pressurize the indian government to become more pro 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 west because see the west is pro india apparently no it's not All right next question Trojan horse says what do you think Xi Jinping's third term is going to be like do you think he will be even more aggressive i think it's quite likely that Xi Jinping will be more aggressive and more more assertive uh, the 20th national congress of the ccp has just concluded it ended you know on a very on a very ominous note with the public humiliation of mr xi jinping's predecessor hu jintao uh, hu jintao was in power for i think a decade in in china and uh, and it is under hu jintao's leadership that china experienced year after year of of uh, double digit growth of its gdp and then in 2012 mr xi jinping took over the reins from mr hu jintao and now 10 years later he has publicly humiliated mr hu jintao by having him by by creating the spectacle of mr hu jintao being physically lifted out of his seat by two bodyguards or, or security people and and pulled out of the proceedings of the uh, <clears throat> of the 20th national congress of the ccp mr hujinta was later allowed to come back and vote or whatever but that spectacle that was done is something that that people will remember forever so yeah <clears throat> so mr mr xi jinping mr xi has uh, consolidated his power in the chinese communist party in the ccp in china he has created uh, he has packed the power power echelons with hand picked candidates right uh and yeah so his his hold over the ccp is more or less absolute right now and yet china is going through a very bad time now the economy is not doing well they are not even releasing the gdp figures anymore because that's how bad the economy is doing the belt and road initiative is dead in the water it's frozen it's not going anywhere anywhere uh, anywhere uh, ahead yeah there are lockdowns lots of lockdowns in china again and again because now it looks like china is the only nation that's suffering from the coronavirus pandemic the rest of the world is is kind of looks like it's 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 gone beyond that but the chinese are imposing lockdowns repeatedly in various places like shanghai and so on one wonders why that whether that is a case but that's what's happening right the chinese are struggling even now with the covid so china is not doing well 
China doesn't look like it's going to become a superpower anytime soon because the BRI is dead in the water. It's not working anymore. And they have their great hope of, of Russia coming to beg to them as a consequence of the Ukraine war. That also has not happened because India has helped Russia out by buying 50 times more oil than it was buying from Russia earlier. Despite uh, American threats and warnings. So Russia has been saved by India. Russia has not been forced to go and beg to China and become a Chinese vassal state. So the Chinese, their superpower ambitions are, well, kind of, uh, they're not happening. It's not happening anymore. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So there could be problems in the days, in months and years ahead for Mr. Xi Jinping. You know, uh, a Chinese leader has to perform. They have to show results. That's how the entire system works. It's a ruthless system. It's a brutal system. Any Chinese leader who shows weakness, uh, they, that person doesn't last. It simply doesn't work. Even if that person has taken complete uh, control of the CCP or whatever, if you don't perform in China as a leader, you're, you're dead. You're finished. So Mr. Xi Jinping could get desperate if things go th things keep on going bad. Right? If the economy doesn't emerge out of its its downturn, I mean, things are going to get worse. There's a food crisis. There's an energy crisis in the world, um, which has been created by the, created by the Americans. There, there are these sanctions the Americans have imposed on China. The export controls for semiconductors and all that. So, the, so the Chinese semiconductor in, industry seems to be finished right now. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a nuclear attack on the uh, Chinese semiconductor and chip industry. So now the Chinese, even if they try to control capture Taiwan, if the, Chi the Taiwanese destroy those, uh, those shipping factories, then the Chinese will be left with nothing. So it becomes even more difficult for them to, to try and you know invade Taiwan or conquer Taiwan. So the Chinese are in a very difficult position. And that's something that could make Xi Jinping desperate and make him aggressive. And, uh, you know, lead to various, uh, one could say, ill-advisable actions on behalf of China, on the, on the part of China. Maybe if there is uh, a perception among the Chinese population that the president is not doing well, then the president may, out of desperation, do a gamble, you know, gamble uh, a short war with some nation whom they could try to humiliate and that would bring back the prestige of the president right so yeah things like that could happen it's 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 a, we are living through dangerous times right now these are very dangerous times there are there are potential trouble spots all across the world mainly in asia also in europe you have the russia ukraine conflict that's that's simmering right now it's going on russia is waiting for winter because winter will teach the, the europeans a big lesson right the russians know that it's going to happen it's coming there are hard times ahead for, for Europe. Winter is coming. And over here in Asia, there are all these, these, these trouble spots, you know, places where anything could happen anytime, depending on the leadership. There is the entire undemarcated border between Tibet and India. Tibet is currently temporarily occupied by China. Right now, China has the upper hand. It's way more powerful than India for now. Yes. Uh, from a conventional perspective, from a military perspective, from an economic perspective, and so on. But India also is more than capable of defending itself when it comes to China. So there is the entire undemarcated border between India and Tibet, which is a flashpoint, a potential flashpoint. There is obviously Pakistan, the rogue terrorist nation that is supported by the Americans and the Chinese as a counterbalance to India. That again is a huge problem for the whole world. 
and then there is taiwan and then there is the chinese dispute with, with the japanese in the in the senkaku islands which they call the aoi island islands there are so many trouble spots in in asia so yes mr xi jinping if he gets desperate he could make a move on taiwan he could he could make a move against india he could try and make a move against japan taiwan is very dangerous for him because the americans have a very strong presence there and the americans are still the dominant power in the world japan once again it's supported by the americans the americans have more than 130 military bases permanent military bases on japanese territory so it's very dangerous for, for the chinese to try and you know tangle with japan the japanese have a very very dangerous submarine fleet as well the chinese are really scared of that when it comes to india there are certain red lines the chinese cannot cross if they try something that they could pay a very heavy price for that as well because yeah yeah they their conventional military strength could be better than that of india overall but in the tibet region they are very much exposed yeah and uh, in the mountainous regions you know things are different it's not like conventional warfare mountain warfare is very different you know and in mountain warfare it's often the amount of training and the quality of the training that your armed forces have had and the quality of your personnel that matters because in mountain warfare you need to do hand to hand warfare sometimes and it's all about uh, strategies and tactics and also about the kind of weapon you have india has excellent missiles the brahmos missile can perform feats of what you could call almost magic mm-hmm. and india obviously has the ultimate weapon that the chinese don't want to taste nobody wants that weapon to ever be used in war again but we have it and that's the deterrence so i think that it is possible that xi jinping's third term could be turbulent it could be uh it it could uh give us it could it could it could uh, possibly be more aggressive from his perspective and time will tell us but yes this decade is crucial for india for china for asia for the rest of the world we are witnessing this increasing bifurcation of the global world order the west against the east that's what's happening and obviously in the east we have all these problems russia doesn't trust china india doesn't trust china and china doesn't trust anyone right now we are witnessing some sort of systemic cooperation between russia and china but everybody knows that russia the russians do not trust china and the russians have the world's largest nuclear arsenal and they have one of the most powerful militaries in the world we have not even seen a fraction of that being used in ukraine the russians are keeping it for later because in the future we they may need it so yeah we are witnessing a very turbulent period of world history this decade is going to be crucial in in determining the way the rest of the 21st century is going to go and right now anything could happen we don't know who's going to come out on top the americans are still the dominant superpower they are the only superpower in the world the russians are uh, the major asian power and the two other great powers are india and russia france is kind of a, a medium power and there are no other real powers in the world japan is a us vassal state so it's not an independent nation neither is south korea neither is germany neither is the uk France has a semi-independent foreign policy policy and Israel well well Israel also one one would have to say despite the the good relations between India and, and Israel one the truth is that Israel also to a large extent uh, its foreign policy is a reflection of the US foreign policy yeah and Israel is greatly supported by the US even though during times when the democrats in power Uh, relations between israel and the us are kind of testy kind of troublesome kind of strained that's always been the case in, in recent times at least i mean look at the way look at the kind of relationship the, the israel and the us had during uh, barack obama's t- tenure eight years as president very 
tense relationship, very hostile relationship, right? Between, especially between the two leaders, uh, Obama and Netanyahu. Uh, but overall, Israel's foreign policy is to a large extent or, or to a certain extent, a reflection or a continuation of American foreign policy. So Israel obviously is 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 a nation that is to has a special place in India's foreign policy. A lot of our interests align. So one would hope that Israel continues to prosper and do well and remains reasonably independent from the US. And yeah, that's how it is. So this is a very crucial decade. And it's a, it, I think it's going to be a very turbulent decade. I hope there is no war, but anything's possible. Anything is indeed possible. <clears throat> Bhavesh says, could we see a democratic government in China in the future? I do not see democracy ever taking place, uh, taking a foothold in China. Unless, unless there is a complete regime change orchestrated by the West, which seems extremely unlikely right now. See, democracy has never been a Chinese thing. The Chinese have never been a democratic culture. They've never had democracy. They've always had an imperial system of government from the very beginning. So if you look, look back at, at Chinese history, uh, China is about three thousand, three and a half thousand years old. If you are, if you are, if you want to be charitable to them, three, three and a half thousand years old. That's how old the civilization is. And obviously, if you look at the archaeological record, it goes back in time. But the actual culture civilization starts around three and a half or so thousand years before today, and it's always had an imperial system. It's never been democratic. On the other hand, India always had the Mahajanapada and the Janapada system, which is a form of democracy. It's an Indian form of democracy in which you had elected kings who could be deposed when they did not perform well. So the people were paramount. These were republics. That's what you had in India. The Janapadas and the great Janapadas, the Mahajanapadas. The Chinese have always had an imperial system. Always. So democracy is not something that's in, that's integral or inherent to Chinese culture. It's, it's, it's an un-Chinese concept. Right, uh, so which is why I do not see democracy. There, there is this, there is this band, rock band called Guns N' Roses. If some of you have heard of it, when I was a kid, it was a very big deal. One of the biggest bands in the world at that time when I was a kid, and they went on this long hiatus. They broke up and all that. Then there was this album they were making for a very long time. It was eventually released. I don't know how many years ago, and that album that album was called Chinese Democracy. So that's a myth, it's a mirage, it's never going to happen. yeah. And since it is something that's not a part of the culture, why would we even want the Chinese to become a democratic nation or culture? Let them be what they want. Why should we force something that is not, that is foreign to them upon them? If you want the Chinese to become democratic, it's like force-fitting a foreign alien concept on a culture where it doesn't belong. I am perfectly happy with the Chinese having their own system of governance, whatever it is. If it's an imperial system like you like you have today, then well and good, it's up to them. It is an internal matter of China. In, in international relations, we have to respect other nations and other cultures' internal matters. Don't interfere in that. That's the, that's the foundational principle, actually, of the international system, which obviously the most powerful nations keep breaking all the time. But it's about mutual respect. It's about it's about uh, non-interference in the internal matters of other nations. So I would say I I do not, do not see this ever happening unless there is a complete coup and the Chinese system is broken down by the West and the West is able to effect a complete regime change, which is extremely unlikely. Even if they're able to impose a demo a so-called democratic government in China, it won't last long because it's not something that is part of Chinese culture. So. 
to make it short to answer in one sentence i do not ever see a democratic government in china in the future and that's fine okay yashwan says what are the implications of pakistan being removed out of the fatf gray list why is the us pursuing short term interests doesn't it realize it's doing the same mistake it did in the 90s again how should india tackle this growing adversarial nexus between the us and pakistan uh why do we see this as a mistake from the from the us perspective from the us perspective let's let's think let's put ourselves in the shoes of the us right now for for a minute so the americans are currently the only superpower in the world what what is the definition of, of a superpower the definition from my perspective of a superpower is a nation or a power <clears throat> that can intervene militarily at any part in any part of the world at 60 minutes notice within 60 minutes they can intervene militarily that's a superpower so by from that definition there's only one superpower which is the us they can intervene anywhere militarily anywhere in the world at at 60 minutes notice more or less right the chinese can't do that the russians can't do it and india can't do it right now yeah so the us is the only superpower now if you are a superpower you want that superpower status to go on forever you don't want that to erode away and so you may have you may pursue certain short term interests or certain long long term interests based on what your long term objectives are so from the us perspective they don't want new competitors or new threats to emerge on the horizon on the long term horizon that could uh, nations that could become a threat in the next 10 20 30 years india very much fits the bill of a long term competitor to, to the us india's economy is growing india's population is young energetic very bright very capable huge potential india has everything india in the next 20 years could become the next china india is very much capable of doing that and the americans as a superpower you don't think short term you think long term you think on a 50 year horizon and a 100 year horizon and based on those calculations you do short term things based as long as it is the the your short term actions serve your long term interests so if you are the us you want to ensure that india doesn't rise too much and rise too fast and so to do that you counterbalance india with another power when pakistan is tailor made for that the british created pakistan for this for, for this very specific purpose to counterbalance india and to keep bleeding india and hitting india right that's that's the the only purpose for which pakistan was created and it was to to serve the british geopolitical interests in the region and it now serves the american and chinese to some extent geopolitical interests in the indian subcontinental region and in asia overall so that's why the americans are playing these games they have reopened the cold war playbook they always accused india of having a cold war mentality well now they're quite about that because they are doing the same thing they actually have a cold war mentality we are now in cold war 2.0 the americans have uh, essentially tamed the dragon to a large extent covid was a disaster for china you know <laughs> covid was a disaster for china i mean i personally myself have been guilty of calling this the wuhan virus but now i'm wondering whether it was really a wuhan virus that's all i will say about this so covid was a complete disaster for china it derailed their bid for superpower status look at who it benefited it certainly did not benefit china it was a complete disaster for china and it was great for the us so that's what covid did so so now that the, now that china is more or less under control they would like to control india and that's why they are now supporting pakistan in a variety of ways and so that's why they have removed i mean 
it's the FAT of the Financial Action Task Force that has removed Pakistan out of the grey list. But all these institutions are controlled by the largest uh, <clears throat> power in the world, more or less, which is the US. So now Pakistan can receive funding and investments from various nations without those nations having to worry about the possibility of their in investments being used for terrorist activities. And any we all know that they will anyway be used for terrorist activities because the only purpose of Pakistan's existence is as that of a terrorist nation, which is anti-India. So the Americans are pursuing their interests in this manner. Mm, they are also... Uh, via their various vassal states, also supporting Pakistan via, via Japan, via South Korea, and in a variety of other ways. And <clears throat> there's a whole lot that's going on. So it's not a mistake from the perspective of the US because it did not boomerang on them. It did not hurt them much, right? It did, whatever they did with the Pakistanis in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, it served the US national interest. It was very bad for India. It was very bad for Pakistani people, of course. But it served the US. So it's not a mistake from that perspective, from their perspective. So they will do it again whenever required. So what should India do about this? How should India tackle the growing adversarial nexus between the US and Pakistan? The first thing India has to understand, the government understands this very well. But the people of India needs to under, need to understand this. India has no allies. India is on its own. India is, is doing this very delicate tightrope walk act. India is balancing various powers and various forces and trying to find its own way in the 21st century. If India goes to war with, let's say, Pakistan, who's going to help India? Nobody. If India goes to war with, let's say, China, who's going to come and help India? Not the Americans. And the Russians are currently not in a position to help India. <clears throat> so whatever India does, India is on its own. That's the first thing the people of India have to understand. The second thing, in the long term, over a 20-year horizon, the only thing India needs to do, I have said this a thousand times, I'm going to say it again, another thousand times, the only correct course of action for India is to grow its economy. India needs to first reach the $5 trillion GDP mark and then the $10 trillion GDP mark and keep growing. India has the potential to become the largest economy in the world because historically that's been India's historical position in the world. The largest economy by far, by a mile. That's what India has always been. India has to regain that position come what may. And for that, India needs at least a decade of peace. So India has to somehow or the other ensure that the next 10 years, there is no big conflict that India gets embroiled in. No major war, no major conflict. Keep all the various forces counterbalanced in some way or the other and reach anyhow the $10 trillion economy, $10 trillion GDP mark. Because as your GDP grows, as your economy grows, your military budget also increases correspondingly. And as your military budget increases, you gain more military muscle. And as your military muscle becomes larger, other nations become more and more wary of trying to get embroiled with you in any military misadventure because it would be fatal for them. Right? So that's the only course of action for India. There's only one course of action. Now, that's the long-term plan. That's the long-term strategy. How to reach there? It depends. As the world changes, we will have to keep on changing our, our actions and our tactics. The tactics will keep changing. The strategy and the, the goal, overall goal, the policies have to be the same. 
but the tactics and strategies can keep changing depending on how the winds blow, the geopolitical winds blow. So that's what India needs to do. There's only one way to tackle all these problems. It's by growing. It's by growing and regaining our historical position as the world's largest economy. That's the, the, nothing else. Nothing can come, should come in our way. The, this, this is non-negotiable. That's the only thing India needs to do. And it's not easy. It's obviously not easy. It's easy to say about, speak about this. It's not easy to do. But we have the right leadership right now in position. God forbid if the leadership changes, we are dead. We're finished. Understand that. <clears throat> Okay, Samarth says, you pointed out that India is no longer in the US camp. Considering this, how do you see India-Japan ties and the future of the Quad? India and the US probably have this one common interest, so no impact on India-Japan ties. Um, India-Japan ties are changing, unfortunately. Uh, I pointed out that India is no longer... India was never in the US camp, but India and the US were coming closer together because of the rise of China. Now, like I just said... The Chinese rise has stopped. It has the, the Chinese juggernaut, the Chinese growth engine has stalled. The COVID pandemic has been a complete and utter disaster for China. Their economy is crumbling. They are not even releasing the GDP figures. The Belt and Road interface is 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 finished more or less. It's no longer progressing. And the, the great Chinese bid for superpower status has been completely derailed. They don't even have the uh, Russia as a vassal state. It did not happen. India ensured it doesn't happen. So because of this, because the Americans have more or less tamed the dragon, at least for now, that's why the, the closeness that we were witnessing in India-US ties no longer exists. Now the, tri the, the relations are very strained the relations between India and the US. These are very strained relations right now. The Americans are doing lots of things that are anti-India, primarily through Pakistan, also in a, in a variety of other ways as well, via their various vassal states. Now, what was the Quad? The Quad, whatever you say about this, was primarily aimed at containing China. The Quadrilateral Alliance, India, the US, Australia, and Japan. Now, it's essentially an India-US block because Australia and Japan are U.S. vassal states. Australia is essentially a U.S. corporation. It's owned by the U.S., more or less. And Japan is under permanent military occupation by the U.S. So it's essentially an in India, in India and U.S. block that the Quad is. Now, since the Chinese, to some extent, have been contained, obviously the Chinese are still a formidable uh, naval power. They have a very large navy. They are still building more warships. They're still building submarines. They're still bolstering their armed forces. But because the economy is stagnant now, they will not be able to continue this at the same pace. So, and the Americans have more or less destroyed the Chinese chip-making industry. And they are doing everything they can to hamper the Chinese. And that's why the Americans are, right now it looks like they're pretty confident that the, that, the, that the Chinese have been more or less contained for now at least. Yes. And that's why the Quad will no longer get the same importance as it used to. Obviously, it, is, it still has a relevance. We still They still need, need to contain the Chinese and ensure the Chinese don't cross the various island chains in the South China Sea, the Champa Sea and the, in the Pacific Ocean region and so on. So for that, the Quad is important. The Americans are arming the Australians in the next 20 years. Australia will acquire US-made nuclear submarines and so on. So the Quad will remain relevant. But it will no longer have the same urgency that it had, let's say, two years ago or three years ago. But it's still going to be relevant. So India and the US, from the Chinese perspective, are still on the same side. India does need the US. 
to some extent to counterbalance china india can counterbalance china on its own using its whatever means it has at its disposal but it does need the goodwill of the us to some extent to a large extent actually so um the quad will remain relevant now what about india japan as long as shinzo abe was a big force as long as shinzo abe was alive whether he was active in politics or not he was the biggest force in japanese politics all right no matter what he was doing he was the major japanese politician the major leader in japan no other leader even if they were the prime minister or whatever could hope to achieve the status the stature that shinzo abe had now shinzo abe is out of the way he is out of the way he is gone he has been assassinated now we are seeing a very different kind of uh, relationship between india and japan obviously india and japan the prime ministers meet they have very good relations and we all still have a lot of uh, common interests and all that the japanese are investing in india in a, in a variety of ways the, the bullet train project and so on but the japanese are now investing in pakistan as well which is something they never did before as long as shinzo abe was alive so yes we know that the japanese are entirely controlled by the americans japan is under permanent us military occupation the japanese constitution has been created by the written by the americans and the americans have the final say the last say in in all major policy decisions of the japanese government right so japan is controlled it's puppeteered by the americans and considering this fact there could be a downturn in india japan in, in, in india japan ties we already see japanese investments in pakistan the japanese are uh, waving off certain certain loans not waving off but deferring certain loans to pakistan and uh, you are also witnessing uh, a south korea pakistan defense deal so we are witnessing these changes now so there's going to be an impact on india japan ties and the impact will not be may not be very good one hopes that the a relationship between the two nations so it remains as strong and as vibrant and as positive as it as it has always been india and Jap- japan are like civilizational brothers twins whatever you want to call it uh, india has had a huge influence on japanese culture over the past nearly 2000 years yeah so civilizationally culturally we are very much alike india and japan but in the past 150 or so years there's been this Big, big winds of change in Japan, starting with the Meiji Restoration, the attempt by the Meiji Emperor to to remove all traces of Dharma from Japan, which kind of led to the events of the World War One and World War Two. Then the the Japanese came under American occupation, and now we know where where it is. So there could be certainly uh, a significant impact on, on India-Japan ties going forward. Okay, Ahmad says, what's your views on Iranian kamikaze drones that are creating havoc in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev? Should India acquire some? Vaibhav says, why is Russia using Iranian drones instead of their own drones? Can Russia help Iran in their nuclear program? Can Russia help Iran in the nuclear program? Russia certainly can help Iran in their nuclear program. But does Russia want a nuclear-armed Iran? Not very far from the Russian borders. Let's, Let's take a look at the map. It's been a while since we used the map, but let's do it. <clears throat> so what do I mean by not far from Russia's borders? Let's take a look at the map. So we know where India is. Yes, we know it. Let's go north. North of India, you have Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, then you have Russia. Go westwards, you have the Caspian Sea. So to the west of India, 
there is this temporary nation called Pakistan. We'll, we'll just disregard that. And so India's western neighbor is Iran. Now, north of Iran, you have the Caspian Sea. And to the north of the Caspian Sea, you have Russia. Russia is here. Right? So, Iran, and if you look at nations like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, etc., Russia considers these nations to be part of its geopolitical area of exclusive influence, right? An extension of Russia, essentially. So the Russians, I'm not sure if they want a nuclear-powered, nuclear-armed Iran. A nuclear-armed Iran is going to have a mind of its own. It's not going to listen to anybody else. That's what nuclear weapons do to you, right? Once you have the one ring, you are a whole different entity. You're no longer the same. So um, I'm sure the Russians can help Iran in its nuclear program if they so wish, if they so desire. But do they so desire? I don't think so. I may be wrong. I don't know what's going on in Mr. Putin's mind, in the in the minds of the Russian uh, uh, strategic affairs uh, planners and all that. But I think it doesn't make sense for a nation like Russia or, or any nation to create a new nuclear armed nation not so far from its own borders, right? So that's one thing. So that's part of that's that question answered. Now about the Iranian kamikaze drones. So yes, it does appear like the Russians have acquired a whole bunch of Iranian Shahed, Shahed drones. Uh, these are kamikaze drones. These are loitering munitions. They loiter for a for an extended period of time in the air, and then for and then they strike. And they destroy themselves, but they carry this this uh, explosive charge, this this munition with them, and that explodes, and that essentially obliterates whatever target they strike. So that's what a kamikaze drone is. The um, the Iranians have been manufacturing these these good quality Shahed, I think Shahed two or whatever it is, uh, kamikaze drones, and the Russians seem to have acquired them, and they have been using them on uh, on 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 during as part of their war against. Uh, their, their special operation in Ukraine, including on the capital city, Kiev, right? In retaliation to the destruction or, or the attempt to destroy the, the Crimean bridge. So these drones are very effective. And their efficacy has been demonstrated in the in the Artasakh conflict, right? The Azerbaijan versus Armenia conflict that happened a year or so ago. And the Iranians are not the only nation that uh, manufactures such drones. The Turks have their own drones, their own loitering munitions. And the Israelis also have this Harop, the Harop drone, which also is extremely efficacious and extremely effective. It's, it's been proven to work really, where, really well in, in, in warfare, in conflict. And India may have acquired some of the Israeli drones and India may have acquired the ability to license manufacture those Israeli, Israeli drones possibly. Yeah, I, I hear certain small bird telling me such something like that. Yeah. So uh these see this is the this is the new 21st century form of warfare. That's how it's done. Drones are extremely effective, very efficient and very useful in warfare, especially loitering munitions. They loiter around flying in circles from almost aimlessly, apparently aimlessly for two, three, four hours and then without warning this strike and they can fly quite high i mean depending on the on the manufacturer depending on the type of drone they could fly at a very high altitude almost invisible and then they will suddenly strike and, and uh, you know obliterate the target 
so should in, india acquire india should certainly acquire the drones ideally india should manufacture its own drones home grown technology as long as that is not the case we should acquire such drones from friendly from friendly neighbor nations friendly nations like israel for instance so like i said i it is quite possible that india may already have harop israeli harop drones and india may actually have acquired the ability to license manufacture these israeli drones within india it's possible so yes one has to keep up with the latest developments in military technology in war fighting technology new tactics new strategies and one must not be left behind and i am pretty confident that india is not going to be left behind in these things india is now slowly or rather not so slowly becoming a major drone manufacturing nation and these things are going to be very useful when it comes to war fighting in the future yeah Okay Harita says I live in France I've interacted with many people from many walks of life and from different regions of France there is absolutely no anti-america anti-nato sentiment in France they believe the french believe that putin is evil russia is the cause of all their troubles including the energy crisis and america is their savior so why is the indian media highlighting the micro minuscule protest that happened on one weekend in one place and making it look like there is widespread discontent why do they claim that france is close to quitting nato uh, so i have not been keeping up with the news as it is shown on indian media because it is distasteful the indian media has no absolutely no understanding of geopolitics and strategic affairs absolutely none whatsoever if you see their analysis it is it is ridiculous say ridicule yeah so i don't watch the news so i'm not sure what the indian media has been saying in case they have been highlighting some protests well that's what the indian media does it has no idea of what's really happening and they have no ability to, to really interpret and analyze what various events actually mean and they often tend to blow small things out of proportion and make it you know fit a certain narrative or perspective or whatever it is so i don't know what the indian media has been doing but i kind of strongly agree with you that most people in france are pro nato and very strongly anti russia and uh, as we know uh, russia and france have had their historical dealings which have not been always very positive whether you look at the napoleon napoleonic era or even before that or even after that and so on europe is has a very has a very uh, long and uh, rather fraught history of enmity between the various nations and uh, so i i i totally understand that the, the people of why the people of france would not have a very very strongly or or not have a very good sentiment towards russia and obviously the americans did liberate them to a large extent from the nazis during world war 2 so that is also there the the normandy the invasion of normandy from from the beaches of normandy you know and from there the the campaign moved eastwards liberation of paris liberation of france eviction of the nazis all that So yes the people of France most likely like you are saying would have a very pro america and pro nato sentiment no anti america anti nato sentiment overall there will be some pockets of resistance maybe among the farmers or among certain people who would feel that france would be better off being outside nato there is there is obviously a political party under marine le pen and she is of the opinion that france should leave nato but she obviously is not uh, right now able to win the presidency right so um 
overall France is definitely going to be pro-NATO and anti-Russia. Or most of uh, the Western European nations are going to be like that. So, uh, yeah, so that is indeed the case. There will not be a very strong or any or extensive anti-NATO, anti-America or pro-Russia sentiment within France whatsoever. The Western European, the people of Western Europe consider Russia to be an Eastern, Eastern nation. They do not consider Russia to be a European nation, a European culture. They consider the Russians to be an Eastern people, an Eastern culture. So it's a cultural thing, it's an ethnic thing, and also it's a political thing, a geopolitical thing. So yeah, overall, I totally agree with Harita's assessment and her reporting that the people of France are definitely anti-Russia and pro-US, pro-NATO. And I don't know what the Indian media does. I do not take the Indian media seriously at all. They have no understanding of geopolitics. They have no understanding of what's happening in the world. Their reporting is, is cringeworthy very often. For the longest time, when it came to foreign policy and external affairs, the only, the only nation they thought of from the foreign policy perspective was Pakistan. International affairs means Pakistan. That's how it was until I think 90 until until 2019, 2020, until the Galwan clash. And then China came on the horizon slowly. Nowadays, everybody is a geopolitical expert, but they have no idea of what's really happening. So I have seen the Indian media in action. It's it's terrible. So let's not take it very seriously, shall we? Yeah. Okay, Nitish says, uh, what's the question? Wouldn't it be better for India to be in line with America's interests and develop the nation as Japan, Germany, and other nations did after World War II? Right. So, interesting perspective, interesting question. So, it would have been good for India if India had, let's say, aligned itself to a certain extent, for sure, with the US. The US was willing to to make India one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Even the Russians wanted that. And there were at least three offers that were made to India. And the great Indian magnificent prime minister, the great magnanimous Sri Nehruji refused those offers and insisted that that position be given to China instead. That's a whole different story, right? So the Americans did want India on their side. The, the president of the US, Mr. Kennedy, he actually offered India nuclear weapons technology before the 1962 war with China. Had India acquired the technology, the Chinese would not have dared fight a war against India and try to invade India, which they succeeded in doing to some extent. So it would have been good for India's interest. But the question is, how far would, it, should we have go, would we have gone with that? Should India have become, like you say, a nation like Japan or Germany? Well, Japan and Germany are under permanent US military occupation. That would be a horrible thing for India. Because then India would become... Earlier, we had the East India Company. Now, you would have the Americans. And then India's foreign policy and India's internal policy would become an extension of America's national interest, which would not be good for the people of India and the nation and the civilization of India. So, it made sense, it would have made sense for India to align itself or ally itself with the US to a certain extent without compromising on its core interests, on its national interests, its cultural interests and all those things. Yeah. So, it would have been good if it had been done judiciously in the right way. For that, you need good leadership, which we did not have. Of course, we had great, magnificent leadership, but we did not have good leadership. So uh, that's what happened. Now, we have to understand a different perspective as well. The people of Japan, Japan is an extremely prosperous nation. It's the most 
technologically advanced nation in the whole world today isn't it the the, the most technologically advanced nation in the world germany is europe's um, industrial powerhouse it is europe's biggest economy largest economy uh, the gdp per capita of japan is incredibly high compared to that of india and the same goes for germany japan's gdp per capita may perhaps possibly be higher than that of germany as well so the people of germany and the people of japan experience great levels of personal prosperity very high standards of living and yet these two nations are enslaved these are not free nations these are nations that are laboring under permanent foreign occupation think about it like this let's say you have a family of lions in a zoo lions ah, lions these lions have kids of their own one generation second generation those kids have kids of their own and so on so these new generations of lions live in this big vast zoo with a lot of ground territory which they can cover and there is a fence around that so they have excellent standards standards of living they get fed regularly as much as they want to eat they get great shelter they get great they get water they get everything they could imagine they could ask for they live lives of great safety great great luxury and no problems at all right and yet they are slaves they are enslaved they cannot go beyond the confines of the zoo so yes it's possible to enjoy great living standards and great personal individual prosperity in a nation that is completely enslaved do you really want that that's the question you have to ask yourselves it is and and, and a person who lives in such a nation will have all the will all will have all kinds of options at their disposal they will have great personal freedom they'll be able to travel wherever they want in, in the world at a moment's notice they'll be able to choose any career they want they'll be able to give their children whatever they, the, the children want so individually each person will be very prosperous and very free but collectively the nation is still enslaved understand the difference between these two things so yes had india become another slave vassal nation of the us maybe the people's prosperity would have been great but india's culture would have been destroyed and india's freedom would have evaporated look at what's happening in japan look at the cultural erosion japanese are suffering look at the cultural erosion and destruction of the culture of south korea yeah sure they are prosperous they have great standards of living very high amounts of prosperity and yet where's south korea's culture and they have no freedom the nation doesn't have an independent foreign policy the nation doesn't have an independent military policy south korea's head of the military is a us general is an american general when it comes to japan all major policy decisions in japan by the government they can be done only after the approval of the americans this is not a free nation so the question is do you want to be prosperous but slaves or do you want to struggle upwards and be free that's the question from a long term perspective struggle is better immediate freedom immediate prosperity isn't great because in the long term your nation ceases to exist your culture ceases to exist you become irrelevant and you become subsumed by the superpower so that's the thing we have to take a long term perspective a 100 year 200 year 1000 year perspective for us in india 1000 years are not a big deal we are the oldest surviving civilization the oldest civilization that exists on the planet more than 10000 years old for us 1000 years is not a big deal 
So we have to take a hundred year or maybe a thousand year perspective. And had we aligned ourselves with the US the way the Japanese and the Germans have been aligned as, as vassal states, as slaves, it would have been the end of Indian civilization. Even today, as a free nation with an independent foreign policy, we are still facing so many challenges from the cultural and civilizational perspective. There are so many internal problems that are being created within the nation by outside forces. And one of the main thrusts of these outside forces is to uproot and destroy Indian culture and civilization. We are seeing it everywhere. So imagine had India been a vassal state of the Americans, like the Ger Germans have been, or the Japanese have been. Well, the German culture is more or less the same as the American culture from a religious perspective, the same religion. So the, the Germans are fine. But the Japanese and the Koreans see what's happened to their culture and their civilization. It, it's, it's disappearing. It's evaporating. So I would say that it would have been good had India aligned itself judiciously with America from the perspective of India's own national interest in a way that benefited India and the US simultaneously without one nation you know, getting more out of, out of the deal. So that would have been good. But had India become like Germany or Japan, it would have been the end of India. So yeah, that's, that's the answer. Okay, Bhumi says, what are your thoughts on the new air base in Gujarat's DISA, which after its completion will reduce the long-pending strategic gap, gap of 355 kilometers between the Buj and Uttarlai air bases? And how much will it be a game-changer in strengthening India's defense and national security? Okay, let's take a look at the air base in DISA. So, where is DISA? It's somewhere in the north of India, in the north of Gujarat, I, uh, I beg your pardon. So the old capital of Gujarat was Patan, this town here. It was once the greatest city in Gujarat. North of Patan, uh, you have this place called Disa. So that's it. So it's in the vicinity of this town called Disa that the uh, new airbase will come up. It's in northern Gujarat, close to the Gujarat-Rajasthan border, south of Mount Abu, more or less. So we have an airbase near Buj in western Gujarat, in Kutch, right? Buj, this is Buj over here, if you can see. This here is Buj. And then there is uh, this Uttarlai Air Base, which I believe is in the Barmer region of Rajasthan, right? Somewhere here. So there is a big gap in between. So this new air base in Disa will fill that gap. Will it be a game changer? Not exactly a great game changer, but it's going to plug a gap that is currently existing. So it's a good thing. So I'm glad to see that uh, these steps are being taken to, uh, to strengthen India's uh, defenses and India's national security. Um, overall, when it comes to Pakistan, Pakistan is is not that big of a threat to India as, as compared to China. But it certainly makes sense to uh, plug in any gap, to fill in any gap that currently exists vis-a-vis -vis our air defenses and, and overall uh, border defenses vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan versus, versus Pakistan. So it's a it's a very good step that we are taking now that our economy is growing, our we can invest more in these, these things. So it's going to be, in the long run, a very good thing for India, as long as Pakistan temporarily exists. Then we will look at other things. Okay, Daniel Nicholson says, I'd love to know if India's latest airport, where the first flight was completed by Indigo Airlines this month, 
so the latest airport near it- Itanagar in Arunachal Pradesh is a message to China, which claims Arunachal Pradesh to not mess with Modi's new India, considering the People's Republic of China always raises objections to any official visit to Arunachal by Indian dignitaries. Is India finally shedding its laid-back approach to the yesteryears of the yesteryears and being more aggr- assertive now, which is good? Okay, let's take a look at the where Itanagar is. So Itanagar is in Arunachal Pradesh, in the far east of India. So this here region is called Arunachal Pradesh. Let me um, bring in, I don't know, the terrain map. Here we are. One second. Okay, let's turn off terrain. So that's easier now to see. So Arunachal Pradesh is in the far east of India. And the capital of Arunachal Pradesh is Itanagar, which is over here. All right. So that's where Itanagar is in the context of the Indian geography. And and we are now constructing a new airport. It's almost done. I think the first flight has already landed, a test flight by Indigo Airlines. And I think this new airport is going to become operational in October 2022, which is this month itself. And then we will have regular flights to this place, to Itanagar from various parts of the country. So it's a very good thing. So what does it mean? So any airport, any landing strip has dual use. It can be used for commercial aircraft, civilian aircraft. It can also be used for fighter jets, for military aircraft. Whether you go to <clears throat> places like Selchar in Assam, whether you go to places like Leh in Ladakh, most of these airports in the border regions have dual uses. Most of these are military airports that are also used for civilian purposes. And you will see various military aircraft parked over there or taking off and landing. You see that all the time. So this is a very good step. And and the other thing I've noticed is that there is a very, very strong flurry of activity by the border roads organization in all our border regions. The border roads organization, the BRO, is working tirelessly day and night to construct the infrastructure, the the road, the, the road infrastructure in our border regions. Whether it is highways, whether it is reinforcing the roads that already exist, whether it is laying better tarmac, better better tar roads or whatever, they are working day and night, and they are working in the most inhospitable terrain in, in the mountains, in the hills. They are creating roads on mountain sides and all that. So we are seeing that a very strong push to create this infrastructure in our border regions, which has been neglected for decades ever since uh, independence, right? Since 1947, India more or less neglected all the border states, did not create any infrastructure there. Whereas the Chinese have created very good infrastructure, road and, and rail transport infrastructure in the border regions. So India is now playing catch up. It's doing it very, very strongly. And we are creating, we are constructing roads, we are constructing bridges, we may be constructing railways in some places, possibly. And we are obviously also uh, constructing new airports and landing strips. So all of this is as part of the uh, very strong concerted effort to catch up with whatever the Chinese have done. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very good thing. So what does it mean? It means that we it's, it's not a message to China. It's about strengthening our national security. It's about strengthening and, and bolstering our border infrastructure, which obviously must be used by the armed forces whenever the time comes for that. Yeah. And yeah, it's also a message to China in, in, in a way to not mess with India. 
so yeah india is indeed finally shedding its so called its laid back approach of yesteryears and it is definitely becoming very much more assertive about its national interest now which is a very good thing arsh says what is your take on the indian air forces new branch which will mainly focus on developing and working on modern technologies like drones land to land missiles land various things uh, do you think they learned this from russia ukraine war you were also saying that we should focus on this um okay so let's see what the news says about this one second uh, yeah let let's put this article on the screen so that we understand what's happening so this is a news article from this month itself about a couple of weeks uh, before today so india get uh, the iaf the indian air force gets a new branch for weapons systems and it's going to uh, it's going to span four specialized streams surface to surface missiles surface to air missiles remotely piloted aircraft and weapon system operators in twin and multi crew aircraft it's a very good thing so essentially what we are doing is we're going to save a lot of money and we're going to save a lot of effort so what does this mean it's going to save a lot of money the new branch will result in a saving of more than 3400 crore rupees due to reduced expenditure on flying training it will unify all weapon system operators under of the iaf under a single entity for operational development of all ground based etc weapons and so on and so forth so it's a very good thing we are finally going to do it in a centralized manner there is going to be no no duplication of effort no redundancy this is going to be a single uh, branch think about it like this right now if you have a twin seater fighter plane in which you have two pilots right now both of these people in in the twin seater plane have to be trained pilots and they also have to be trained on how to operate various weapons systems so the guy sitting in the front is going to be flying the plane the guy sitting in the back back is going to be manning the weapon systems but both have to be trained pilots now with the creation of this new branch the guy sitting in the back the guy who is manning the weapon systems does not need to be a trained pilot so you are cutting down on the unnecessary training that person can be a specialist only in weapon systems he doesn't have to know how to fly the plane the guy sitting in the front will be will be flying flying the plane the guy sitting sitting in the back will be specializing in how to use the various missiles and whatever else we are deploying on the aircraft and the guy sitting in the front does not have to worry about using the weapons he only has to focus on the flying of the of the aircraft similarly there are certain such roles in combat helicopters as well and so on and so forth so this new branch is going to train and specialize in only the weapon systems which is going to be a very essentially a game changer for the indian air force so it is a very good development finally we are reconfiguring the armed forces we are modernizing the armed forces it's a very good development obviously the armed forces have to keep changing keep evolving with the changing times yeah we have to focus on efficiency on on cutting down on of unnecessary uh, expenditure cutting down on unnecessary redundancy and all that so this is now being taken up very strongly with a great amount of seriousness it's a very good step it's a, it's a very good uh, initiative the government has done and the armed forces are, are undertaking is very good uh, have we learned this from the russia ukraine war i don't think it's only about the russia ukraine war it's about how 
the the global military landscape is changing with the advent of new technologies with the advent of more threats different kinds of threats we have to keep evolving we have to stay agile from the armed forces perspective and that's what we are doing i obviously have said that we have we should focus on this we should focus on streamlining and reforming the armed forces making the armed forces a more lethal fighting force in a variety of ways so yes this is a very good step in that direction i'm really happy to see that and this is one step we need to take many more steps in this direction but i am really glad to see that this is happening so yeah overall a very good step neeraj jangit says in a recent interview joseph borrell representative of the eu for foreign affairs said that since the second world war europe has built the best combination of political freedom economic progress and social cohesion these three pillars have made europe great to live in organized society he also said that most countries lack one or two of them what's your take on this and what's india's position on these three fronts how can it be improved so this individual joseph borel is a spanish politician or something like that he like you said is a represents the eu from the perspective of foreign affairs or whatever it is he's in some high ranking position and recently he gave this gave the speech in which he said that europe is like a garden and other nations are like a jungle right and he said that europe uh, has built the most perfect and most organized society that ever has existed europe um, let's see what what the media report says i'm sure there is something we can pull up one second give me a second let me pull that up okay joseph borel what do we have to see about him all right where is mr borel here we are joseph borel apologizes for controversial garden versus jungle metaphor but defends what he said so uh he says that the he did not mean to be racist or it had no racist or cultural or geographical connotation include uh, and so on that's what he said so he said that europe is a garden we have built a garden everything works it's the best combination of political freedom economic prosperity and social cohesion that the humankind has been able to build the three things together the rest of the world he said is not exactly a garden most of the rest of the world is a jungle and the jungle could invade the garden he then referred to the eu ambassadors as gardeners and urged them to go to the jungle and and maybe you know reform the jungle or civilize the jungle or whatever and so on so that's that's what this individual has said so what is my take on this we have to understand something about europe how did let's say europe is a is a garden right now how did it become a garden 500 years ago europe was the worst of jungles how did europe become so prosperous how did it make so much economic progress you cannot have political what 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 they call political freedom and social cohesion with without economic progress and a great amount of prosperity how did they achieve what they call economic progress they the europeans achieved economic progress by destroying the rest of the world there there were gardens outside of europe in the past they destroyed those gardens and turned those gardens into wastelands and jungles and they plundered everything of value out of those gardens including africa including china and mainly india and enriched themselves at our expense that's how they were able to create their own garden 
by destroying the rest of the world. Europe produces nothing. Europe is small compared to the rest of the world. How did the entire wealth of the world end up in, in Europe? Through piracy, through plunder, through destruction, through looting, through genocide. And now they say that we are the best in the world. We have created the best combination, blah, blah, blah. The problem now, <laughs> the problem now is that the rest of the world is rising again. And the Europeans produce nothing of any, any great value. And without producing any, anything of any great value, in the future, their economies are going to go down. And the rest of the world is going to rise. India is going to rise. China is going to rise. And once the European colonization of Africa ends, it still hasn't ended. Once it ends, hopefully in the future, Africa will also rise again. Africa has incredible amounts of natural resources. The African nations should be the most prosperous nation in the world. But what's happening is that all the wealth is still being funneled out of Africa into the West. That's what's happening. So when all these things end, which will happen with the rise of the East, Europe will go back to its natural status of being the one of the first jungles of the world. So uh, that's my take on this. What's India's position on this? India's position, we, we are doing economic progress right now. We are a long way away from regaining our historical position of being the great, largest economy in the world. But it will happen. Social cohesion, it, we don't quite have a great deal of social cohesion right now. There are lots of internal problems which have all been created by outsiders. India, and th these are efforts that are still happening right now, actively, to create more divisions within India. And these are all being financed and fomented by external forces and powers. We know who they are. And we know how they're doing it. They're trying to create divisions on ethnic and social and cultural and religious lines within India. And this is, an, this is something that's uh, um, a project that is actively being conducted by them. So yes, there are problems when it comes to social cohesion. Economic progress is happening. It's, it's going to take some time, maybe a decade or two for India to rise to, a, uh, to the position of one of the largest economies in the world. India soon enough will be the number two or number three economy in the world. It's it's just a matter of time, as long as there is no big calamity like a great war or conflict. Uh, so from the economic progress perspective, India is doing well. India is on the right track. Social cohesion, there are forces outside of India that are trying to undermine social cohesion in India right now. We know who they are and we know what they're doing and how they're doing it. When it comes to political freedom, India India has political freedom. The people of India have genuine political freedom. India is one of the few genuine democracies in the world. India is a vibrant, though chaotic, multi-party democracy. Look at the US. It's a two-party state. That's not a democracy. That's a farce. It's just one step ahead of North Korea and China, which are both one-party states. North Korea has a single political party. And when their leader stands for election, everybody has to vote for him. The same goes for China. In China, the people can't even vote. There's a whole different weird system there. So China is a one-party state. North Korea is a one-party state. The US is just one step ahead of that. The US is a two-party state. Yeah, there are two or three insignificant political parties that don't really count. These are insignificant political parties. If you want to make any difference as a politician in the US, you have to either be a Democrat or a Republican. That's it. There are some parties. Those are insignificant parties. So please don't quote that. I don't need that. No one needs that. It's Those are irrelevant and insignificant political parties. The only two parties that really matter and really count are the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. 
so called democratic party so it's a two party system we how how can you call that a democracy who's going to represent the hopes and aspirations of the various minorities in the us in india every single minority every single region of india has political parties multiple political parties that uh, that represent that those regions and those minorities why are there no why is there no political party in the us that stands up for the rights and hopes and aspirations of the native americans why is there no political party in the us that stands up for the hopes and aspirations and rights of the african americans or the latinos or 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 the hindus or the jews or whatever why is there no such system why does everything have to be force fitted into either the democrats or the republicans so this is not a genuine democracy it's a farce so india is far ahead in terms of political freedom compared to nations like the us or australia which is a joke australia is entirely owned by the us or or nations like the uk which don't even have a political which don't even have a constitution the uk doesn't have a constitution the uk is a constitutional monarchy it's ruled by by a, by a king and you may say the king is a figurehead a puppet only in name not so true not so true you think it's it's that way it's made to appear to you like the 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 king of england um uh, doesn't really matter it's only a figure he's only a figurehead he's not quite only a figurehead but yeah if you want to know more about that you need to do your own research i'm not telling you about it right now <laughs> i'm not going getting into that so i think india is on the right track india is doing well from the economic pro- progress perspective india is doing very well from the political freedom perspective better than the west from the social cohesion perspective the west is trying to destabilize social cohesion in india but we will overcome this these attempts and we will come out on top all right priyal says can you please shed some light on the recent hunger index reports which had placed india on one of the lowest spots despite other countries undergoing economic natural and hunger crisis sanju says why do what do you think it looks when india ranks so low lower than both the neighboring countries one was devastated with floods on the hunger index report when india sent food relief during covid pandemic and ukraine crisis to so many countries in need how can india rank so low is it a west conspiracy to show india in a negative light or is there or is there something that we as a nation are not giving enough focus i have got a lot of questions about the hunger index thing some people are saying that india is not doing well they actually believe this nonsense india has sent food aid to so many nations during the covid crisis during during other crises as well india is a next india is a net exporter more or less of food especially when other nations require aid from india nobody in india is suffering from hunger the un reports have shown that india has more or less eradicated extreme poverty india has brought more people out of extreme poverty than any other nation in the world in the past day, past uh, roughly a decade right so what is this entire thing this hunger index report first of all this is not a scientific report it was done you know on a very arbitrary basis the sample size was was about 3000 people if i am not mistaken and they asked very very vague questions in order to suit their agenda so we don't have to take these things seriously i don't understand why indians take these things seriously and they actually start believing these things who are foreigners to to decide where india ranks on whatever index yeah um so what is the purpose of this hunger index thing is it a conspiracy to show india in a negative light or is it something else the purpose of this hunger index thing of putting india very low on the hunger index 
the purpose of doing this why are they doing this they are doing it so that they can mislead the voters of india and make the people of india think that the government is doing very poorly and hopefully this will effect a regime change in india in 2024 that is the real reason they are doing this they want to undermine india they want to make people in india feel that the government is not doing well because indians still crave western approval and a western stamp of approval and western certificates so they will give you bad certificates they will say you know you're not doing well they will say the india the nation is doing very poorly and most people in india they believe this nonsense so the objective is to hopefully from their perspective overthrow the current government in 2024 and bring a weak government to power or maybe a government led by one of their favorite puppet individuals like i have said in the past there are lots of aspiring zelenskys in india i am not pointing fingers at any individual i am not taking anybody's name i am not even going there but you know what i mean there are plenty there is no shortage of aspiring zelenskys in india zelensky is as a nato puppet he is a western puppet he is not serving the people of ukraine he is not serving the nation of ukraine he is serving his western masters and it's resulting in the complete destruction of ukraine as a result there are plenty of aspiring zelenskys in india and the west would like one of these zelenskys to come to power in 2024 and how do you do that you do that by making people doubt the performance of the go- of the government by issuing these false uh, indices in reports and saying that india is doing very poorly in the hung- hunger index indians are starving to death what absolute nonsense so please don't believe this nonsense these are all lies and fabrications designed to mislead you the people of india do not fall prey to these manipulations and distortions and lies please don't that's all i say okay vishnu says what is the geopolitical stand of brazil because it is a member of brics the chinese bloc okay and uh, it's counted as a strategic ally of the us but the us doesn't support its ask for permanent seat in the un security council at least through words why the, is brazil the sixth largest country and perhaps the biggest economy in latin america why is it unable to influence world politics and economics so you can't influence world politics and economics without having an independent foreign policy and without uh, being a major power it may be the sixth largest nation in the world but it from the economy perspective it's it's not a big economy if you're not a big economy and you are subsidiary subsidiary to other bigger powers then you are insignificant and irrelevant so brazil does seek some in- okay let's understand the history have you heard of the monroe doctrine the monroe doctrine was the us foreign policy in the 19th century more or less since the 19 since the 1820s onwards so you had the napoleonic wars so understand this the americans broke free of the uk of of england in the american revolution they became an independent nation uh then you had a lot of french involvement in north america uh the americans brought the louisiana thing from napoleon for a very cheap price then they later brought, bought alaska from the russians then they were able to evict the french more or less from north america in a variety of ways then there was a great deal of spanish colonization in south america 
I hope you all know where South America, North America is. If you don't, let's go to the map because that's what we do. So let's take a look at the map. We're talking about Brazil and North America and the Western Hemisphere. So the Western Hemisphere is right here. North America and South America. Brazil is the largest nation in South America. So in the in the in the 19th century, the Americans had the Monroe Doctrine, which opposed any European involvement in the geopolitics of the Western Hemisphere in any way whatsoever. The Americans said that we will oppose any European effort to influence outcomes or to colonize any nation in the Western Hemisphere. When this doctrine was put forth in the 1820s, at that time, the Napoleonic Wars had ended and most of the nations of South America had more or less broken free of Spanish colonization. So the Americans said that we will not allow, we will oppose any further attempts by European nations to try and colonize any nation in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas, which essentially said that we are going to be the dominant power, the dominant force in the Americas and we will enforce this dominance militarily. And the Monroe Doctrine did not put any limitations on to what extent the Americans could you know, influence things in the Americas. Um, so that's what that's what the Monroe Doctrine was. Eventually, you had all these weak nations that that emerged out of the Americas. The Americans fought several wars. There was the U.S.-Spanish War as well, which uh, led to the freedom of Cuba and uh, various other conflicts. Uh, Hawaii was annexed by the Americans as a consequence of the Monroe Doctrine. Then you had the First World War, the Second World War. The Germans opposed that. The British also opposed that, but eventually the Americans came out on top. And all the nations in the Americas essentially were subsidiaries to the American uh, national interest and American foreign policy. As a consequence of this, you had various weak nations in the, in the Americas, including Brazil. Now, now Brazil is, is a large nation from the geographical area perspective. It's not a major economy. It's, it's not a very strong economy. Uh, it does obviously seek some independence. It does. Every nation seeks independence. Every nation seeks to no longer be somebody else's vassal state. And that's why Brazil is part of the BRICS block. I would not. Yeah, BRICS is still more or less dominated by China. But Russia and India together can very much counterbalance China in BRICS. And now more nations want to become part of BRICS. I believe Argentina also wants to be part of BRICS. Uh, Iran has applied to be part of BRICS. One hears that Saudi Arabia also wants to become part of BRICS. So we are witnessing a global realignment of, of, the, of, the, of the entire global world order. Uh, so the question is, why is Brazil unable to influence world politics? Because it is not a strong nation. It doesn't have a strong economy. It's not a major economy. I don't think Brazil is in the top 10 of the economies, unless I'm mistaken. It's not a major economy. It's not a major military power as well. There is no major military power in the Americas except, apart from the United States. No other nation is a major military power. And so on. So because of these, these factors, Brazil is currently not able to have any kind of genuine major influence on world politics, world geopolitics, or world economics. For that, you have to become, first of all, a large economy, a major economy, and then you also have to build up your own military strength based on the kind of economy you have, and you also need to have an independent foreign policy. Right now, every single nation in the Americas, whether it's Canada, 
whether it's Mexico, whether it's Chile, or it's Argentina, whether it's Brazil or whoever else, all of these nations are to some extent in one way or the other vassal states of the US and they don't really have very independent foreign policies and that's why none of them really matter from a geopolitical or economic perspective on the global arena. Right. Sambit Jena says, in the Falklands War, in the Falklands Island War, Argentina was the aggressor. Yes, sir. Sambit Jena asserts that Argentina was the aggressor in the Falklands Island War. I, I think I've said this multiple times. In public perception, the person who strikes first is always seen as the aggressor. The, the, the person or the party that is the first to take kinetic action is always seen as the aggressor. Now let's let's take a look at the geography of the of the of the Malvinas, right? All right, we are at the right place. So the so-called so let's see where where the UK is. You see where the UK is? It's over here, right? Can you see United Kingdom over here on the map? Yeah, this is the UK. Now let's see where the Malvinas Islands are, or the so or the Falkland, the so-called Falkland Islands are. Go several thousand kilometers southwards cross the equator, keep going thousands of kilometers south, and all the way here near Antarctica, off the coast of Argentina, you have the Malvinas Islands. Let's let's try and calculate the distance in a straight line from the Malvinas to the UK, roughly. Measure distance from here all the way to, let's say, London. It's 12, almost 13,000 kilometers. How does a territory, how does a bunch of islands that's 13,000 kilometers away from England how does it become part of England? On, 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 by what right does Britain claim that it's part of their territory? It's right next to Argentina. So it's see, we understand that Argentina, the population of Argentina, Argentina are immigrants. All the nations of South America, nation states, were created by by colonization and so on. That's fine. But let's look at it from a geographical perspective. It's very clear that this bunch of islands, this archipelago, should be part of Argentina. It's nowhere near the UK. It's 13,000 kilometers away from the UK. It's right off the coast of Argentina. So by all rights, it should belong to Argentina. And yet, it is under illegal and temporary British occupation. So the Argentinians decided to take matters into their own hands and they decided to uh, liberate the islands through military action. So they were the first to fire shots. And that's why this gentleman, Sambit Jena, is saying that they were the aggressors. When somebody is occupying your territory illegally for, for a very long time, and then you take military action, are you going to be, should you be called the aggressor? No. The person who is occupying territory illegally is the aggressor. And you are simply taking steps to, to seek justice and to redress the injustice that has been carried out. So in that case, you are not the aggressor. But see, that's how gullible and, and that's how gullible people are. That's how simple-minded people are. That whoever fires, fires the first shot is going to be seen as the aggressor, whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter. That's the problem. So it's very clear that the, the Malvinas Islands should by all rights belong to Argentina, not to the UK. I would say that the UK is, is, is currently temporarily and illegally occupying the Malvinas Islands. They need to be evicted out of there. And this is happening, obviously, because of the support of larger nations, of, of more powerful nations. I think we can all guess which that powerful nation is. Anyhow, so I completely disagree with this very, very simplistic 
simple minded statement that argentina was the aggressor argentina was seeking to redress the injustice that had been perpetrated upon it by the colonial imperialistic british occupation of the malvinas islands they were simply trying to redress that injustice they failed and because they fired the first shot simple minded people say that argentina was the aggressor which is so wrong tomorrow when the time is right india is going to retake pok and liberate tibet if india fires the first shot are you going to say that india is the aggressor how stupid would that be think about it right <clears throat> next okay chiching says what was the lifestyle of the people of the far east of india during the vedic, during the vedic times how did they live what did they eat did they have kings and queens what was the lifestyle like okay let's understand where is the far east of india very good question so when chiching refers to the far east of india she refers to what most people still now, even now refer to as the so called northeast of india the northeast of india is what i call the far east of india which should correctly be called the far east of india which uh, comprises the various states over here sikkim assam arunachal pradesh nagaland meghalaya manipur tripura uh, these are the various uh, states that comprise this region right this is the far east of india so the question is what was the lifestyle of the people of this region like during the vedic times how did they live what kind of lifestyle did they have what kind of food did they eat eat did they have kings and queens and so on now when we talk about the vedic age we are most likely talking about a, a time that that is about between 6 to 8000 years before today at least maybe more than that because of the dating of the river saraswati which is mentioned in the rigveda in the rigveda the saraswati is mentioned as a very strong massive powerful river roaring river mother of floods and the last time the saraswati was in her prime was about 6000 bc which is 8000 years before today which indicates the rigveda was written closer to 6000 bc than to later on so the most likely the vedic age was around 6000 4000 5000 6000 bc maybe before that somewhere around that time a very long time ago maybe 8000 years ago maybe even before that or somewhere in that time period so during this time what was the lifestyle of the people of the far east like we don't know there are no records that we have and nobody has done any archaeological work in this region of any significance for instance how many archaeological sites do we know of in nagaland present in nagaland how many archaeological sites do we know of in in manipur in meghalaya in mizoram in tripura almost none at all i don't know what the archaeologists and historians are doing in this region almost no work at all so we don't know what archaeological sites exist there we don't know what archaeological artifacts we can find from this region and we don't know what the lifestyle was was like at the, at the time what we do know is that the region of which is now known as tibet and and the so called xinjiang temporarily occupied by china it was once known as uttarakuru this was in a time after the vedic age right after the vedic age at that time there was no tibet there were no tibetan people living there this entire region was inhabited by indian origin kingdoms and people and so was uttaramadra which is present day central asia so around 5000 6000 years before today there were not tibetan people living in this region there were indian origin people living here even during the mauryan era where uh, the hotan kingdom was founded by indians from the mauryan uh, era of india hotan and and so on so it looks like the various other people who lived there today the so called uigurs 
and the our good friends, the Tibetan people, etc., they came in later from further east, from further east. Uh, and we know that the most of the languages that are spoken in the far east of India are classified classified as Tibeto-Burman languages. Some of these languages, like the the languages in Assam, are classified as Thai languages. So it looks like at some point in time, people migrated into the far east of India from further east, maybe from the Yunnan region of, of, of currently temporarily in China, or maybe from, from further north, from the Mongolia region or somewhere else. We don't quite know. We will have to do a lot of research to understand the migration patterns and how people migrated into this region and, and, and at what time they migrated into this region. We will need to do archaeogenetic work population genetic research, we will have to do archaeological work and a lot of such research which will together help us form a good idea of when the migrations happened and how long have the people of let's say Assam, the Ohom people been, been living there, how long have the various uh, Naga clans been living there, the various, uh, the, how long have the Meite people been, been living in, in the Manipur region and so on, and so, the, Mizo, the Mizo people and so on. Currently, we have next to no idea at all because our historians have not done their job. Our archaeologists have not done the job. So unfortunately, I don't have the answer. Nobody has the answer. You will have some historians who will make certain claims, but those claims will be baseless because nobody has done the research on which you can make such claims. You go to the University of Manipur in Imphal, you go to the University of Nagaland in, in Kohima or whatever. I would like to go to those places and, and talk to the professors of history over there and ask them, what have you guys been doing? Unfortunately, they, they've been doing nothing. So as of today, as of 2022, nobody has the answer of what was the lifestyle of these people like. Uh, most likely the people who live in the far east of India today, whether it's in Nagaland, Manipur, Assam, Meghalaya, or whatever else, most likely some of their ancestors came from further east or further north. And some of their ancestors would have been part of overall the the western regions of india obviously it's it's all a mixed bag it's a, it's it's a, you don't have a single line of ancestry you have thousands of lines of ancestry that's how it is so um, the answers still elude us because our historians and our researchers have not done their job uh, so i don't know as of today no one knows what kind of lifestyle they had what they ate did they have kings and queens of course they had kings and queens uh, historically, most of us, us as in Homo sapiens, most most humans have always had the uh, monarchical system, kings and queens. Democracy is a fleeting experiment. We had uh, an indigenous form of democracy in India for the longest time, the Janapada system, uh, that no longer exists. Today, we are laboring under this false Western democratic system. <laughs> but historically, human beings have always lived under kings and queens. Some of them have been good, some of them have, may have been bad, but it's always been the monarchical system. So yes, the ancestors of the people of the far east of India would definitely have had kings and queens. And most likely they would have come from, most of them would have come from further east at some various points in time. And many of their ancestors would also have come from the west of the region. Which, uh, which is colloquially called as mainland India, which is not exactly a correct term. Anyhow, that's what one can say about this. Saurabh says, how many evidences of burial of selected bones after cremation were found in the Indus Valley civilization? What about cemetery burials there? Uh, 
the were they first generation immigrants or original inhabitants that's a good question uh let me put something on the screen okay uh this is something i had tweeted a long long time ago not a very long time ago i think 2019 or something so there is this uh paper that has been published and which and i have summarized it over there there is evidence that the harappans practiced cremation there is strong evidence that cemetery burial was limited almost exclusively to first generation immigrants hence burials may not represent the harappan population at all and let me show you the actual paper itself what it says where is it here it is evidence for patterns of selective urban urban migration in the greatest indus greater indus valley region and so on so it says that um what does it say so essentially if you read the paper it tells you that it, the paper says that it is quite likely that whatever burials you find in the saraswati sindhu region may actually represent first generation immigrants to the region and it is quite it is quite possible that the majority of the population of the region practiced cremations yeah we do find burials but those burials may represent first generation immigrants and not the actual natives of the region that's very possible because cremation has always been the major practice in india in in funerary rituals right and we do find evidence of cremations in the saraswati sindhu region pots that are filled with ashes and burned bones of individuals who have been cremated you find that you find a few burials but not as many as you would find if if everybody practiced burials so it looks like the burials that you find could represent first generation immigrants to the region why would there be immigrants to the region this was the most prosperous region in the entire world the most technologically advanced civilization that ever existed and the most prosperous region in the whole world at the time today everybody wants to go to the us because it is so advanced and so prosperous so in the old days there was india that was a saraswati sindhu region so people from all over the world wanted to come immigrate there and settle down there and people from elsewhere would have had different customs so after a generation two or two they would assimilate culturally with the local population and then they would practice the same customs but maybe the first generation immigrants would continue practicing burials and that's what probably likely these uh, burials that we find represent so that's a possibility so that's uh, what that paper tells us and that's i would say a significant possibility does height matter for guys well yes and no i mean if you're tall you don't complain about it it's it's good it it always feels good to be tall but many people who have achieved a lot aren't that tall and that doesn't really matter so what really matters in the long run is what you achieve in your life not what your height is there are lots of tall people who achieve no, nothing in life and there are lots of short people who achieve a great deal uh, napoleon was not a very tall guy he was a short man and i believe even julius caesar is supposed to have not been a very tall person there have been many great people who have not been tall what really matters in your life is how much you contribute to society if you are able to contribute more to society than you take out of it then you have then you have lived a meaningful and meaningful and, and good and productive life so height doesn't really matter obviously it 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 has a psychological effect and you obviously don't complain if you're tall but overall that doesn't really matter what matters is what you do with your life not how tall you are you can't choose how tall you are what your skin color is 
what family you're born in, what nation you're born in, what you can actually choose is what you do with your life. So that's what matters. Your height doesn't overall really matter. So don't really get stuck about whether you're tall or short. It's not important. Archana says, 23 October is Diwali. Will you not burst crackers? I think Diwali is tomorrow, 24th October. Doesn't matter if it's today, if it's today. I think the whole week should be Diwali. Will I not burst crackers? I will burst a lot of crackers. It's part of our culture. It's part of a tradition. Don't believe the woke idiots who tell you that it causes pollution. So crackers don't cause pollution on Christmas Day. How is that so? How come crackers don't cause any pollution on New Year's Day? How come crackers don't cause pollution when there are celebrity weddings where lots of crackers are burst? Why do they only cause pollution on Diwali? What hypocrisy. So I am going to burst a whole lot of crackers tomorrow. I'm going to have a lot of fun. And I invite you all to join me in bursting crackers and celebrating Diwali the way it is supposed to be celebrated. It's one day. One day. Don't give up your culture. Don't give up your traditions. Burst crackers. Go for it. So that's what I would say. Enjoy Diwali. And I wish you all a very happy Diwali. Okay, let's take a few questions from the live chat. I am, I'm sure there are more questions that I have missed. But let's take some questions from the live chat for a couple of minutes. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The Maharaja's elephant says the UK holds air drills over Scotland. Yeah, well, Scotland is currently under temporary UK occupation, under temporary British occupation, and it will soon be liberated. I hope so. Yes. Um, Bobby says it's it's just the amount, everything at once. Lighting up can cause smog. I suppose not major. See, obviously, when you burst a cracker, it's gonna give off some smoke, some 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 pollution. It's just one day. Uh, when it comes to North India, it's the stubble burning that causes the majority of the population, more than 99% of, of the population, of the pollution. And various studies have demonstrated this, that, that's, uh, that preventing people from bursting crackers in Diwali has no effect on the pollution. So there would be maybe a 1% effect. It's, it, it's, it's nothing major. It's just one day that people celebrate. And it's just wrong to, to, <laughs> to force people to give up a, a, a tradition that's thousands of years old. And by the way, gunpowder was invented in India. And we have various paintings that go back centuries, maybe even more than a thousand years, that depict the fireworks being used in Diwali celebrations in India. So I think it's just one day. Obviously, one needs to be mindful of pollution. One cannot do this on a day-to-day, -day, daily basis, on a routine basis. Do it one day and then stop. Be disciplined. I, I, I think Indians are very disciplined from that perspective. People don't burst crackers every single day. It's one day and they should be allowed to do it. And if there are forces within India, certain institutions, certain governments that are trying to prevent Indians from celebrating their culture, that is not the right thing. And the, the, these governments should be elected out of power. All right. Voted out of power, I mean. Gunpowder was invented in India. That is indeed correct. Gunpowder was in, invented in India, not in China. Look it up. Look it up. I am not giving you any references right now because it would take me time to dig it up. But it, gunpowder was invented in India. Look it up. Do some of your own research. Learn how to fact check what I am saying. Right? Go ahead. Manjunath says, is marriage necessary? It's up to you. Your choice. You want to marry? Get married. If you want to live a life uh, without marriage, that's entirely your choice. Who's going to force you? I'm not forcing you. 
it's it's a social custom it ensures there is no conflict in society when you have a couple who essentially stay together for life that ensures stability of the society and no conflict because look at the way the west is today good god there is there is no stability in society people get divorced after a year, a year or two there are childless i mean there are there are single parent families children who grow up without the without the benefit of two parents and see how society is deteriorating see how much strife there is in society how much crime there is in society and, and so on so marriage overall is a good thing it's part of all societies it's always been part of all societies today there is this campaign in the west to to destroy the institution of the family it's not a good thing so overall i say i would say that ma- marriage is an integral part of any stable society but f- from an individual perspective it's entirely your choice whether you want to get married or not nobody should be should force you to do one thing or the other it's your choice you decide the way you're going to live your life shaheen says i'm zoroastrian i'm going to but i'm going to celebrate diwali with all my hindu brothers and sisters as always see our parsi friends our zoroastrian friends are not just our friends they are our own people they are our our close relatives cousins brothers sisters whatever you want to call them so thank you and i really appreciate it and we we love you all <laughs> you are our own people and we should all celebrate our things uh, our our festivals together and take the nation forward as it should all right okay let's take maybe one or two question questions questions can india win a two front war well what india can do mostly is ensure it doesn't lose a two front war that india can certainly do that is almost a guarantee that's almost a guarantee that india will certainly not lose a two front war because india has various tools at its disposal that can be used when certain red lines are crossed so india certainly cannot be defeated in a two front war in a few years india will actually be in a position to win a two front war give it some time and work hard to make india a 10 trillion dollar economy all of you together once we do that we're going to win a two front war if required if it ever happens all right uh ask me a good question one good question Roger says UK is paying eight hundred thousand dollars to hide Mountbatten's diaries. Why? Okay, so I haven't heard of what's happening. Is it is it true or not that they are paying this much of money to hide his diaries? But in case it's true, I would not be surprised. Mister Mountbatten, Herr Battenberg, he was a man of certain unusual proclivities that would be considered to be criminal tendencies today. yeah look it up read up on his criminal tendencies and maybe he recorded his various activities in his diaries that would kind of expose his uh <laughs> unorthodox tendencies and proclivities so maybe that's why they're doing it you know because he is somebody that's that's a kind of kind of portrayed as a, as a great member of 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 the nation or whatever right that's why uh what else do we have i think we are almost at the end of today um do we have any other good question 
Let me try and find one good question. Come on. One good question. Um, <laughs> how can I be smart like you? I'm not smart, man. I just, I've just read a lot. I've just read a lot. I've always been curious. I've always read a lot since I was a kid. And that's why I have a whole lot of what people in the past considered to be completely useless knowledge. But maybe it's not so useless. See, don't ask yourself how you can be smart like person X or person Y or person Z. Ask yourself how ca how can you reach the full the maximum of your potential. So you do that by being open minded, by being curious, by by always being receptive to knowledge. Most of us we stop learning after as soon as we are out of the education system. That is a very bad thing. You should never ever stop learning. So as long as you keep learning, you're gonna keep growing and you're gonna be smart. So that's what I could say in brief. All right, my friends, we are at the end of today's session. Thank you very much for your viewership. Thank you very much for all your questions, for participating. I wish you once again a very happy Diwali. Enjoy yourselves tomorrow. Go burst crackers to your heart's content. And I will see you in next week's live stream. Until then, take care and bye.